0: Hi everyone, it's Bud, and thanks for joining us on the latest episode of Before the Cheering Started, all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. Stephen Dubner is a curious guy, in that he's curious about almost everything. How things work, how they don't work, or do they work in the way that most of us think they work? That curiosity is at the center of the 2005 best-selling book he co-authored, Freakonomics, which has become a radio show, a podcast, and a bit of a cottage industry. He prefers to tell others' stories, but his own story is pretty compelling, so much so that his first book, a beautiful book called Turbulent Souls, was a family memoir. His work now, read and heard all over the world, essentially starts with one question You are constantly looking at the way the world works, and looking at it, and trying to figure out more about how the way the world works. And you've been doing it for quite some time. I'm curious. Are there ever moments where they kind of run out? <laughs> Almost like a songwriter who has, you know, run yeah. out of ideas, or thinks they have run out of ideas. But then something happens, like, wow, how does that work? Or <laughs> does that work the way people, most people, think it works?
1: Yeah. Uh yeah that's a great question. Um I am eternally fearful that what you just said might someday be true but it has yet to be proven true. Um I think um I think the world is uh diverse and complex and weird enough uh to keep people like you and me busy uh into eternity. Even with AI maybe especially with AI because you know we can we can um maybe delegate the 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 more uh, grody tasks to AI and spend more time with the purely creative or imagin- imaginative, or funny or speculative ones. But um, so you know, the thing that I kind of stumbled into free- with Freakonomics, um, you know, which was began as a book, then another a couple other books, and other projects, and mostly now Freakonomics Radio, the podcast, which is a weekly show. And I remember, you know, when I first started writing books, which was many years ago, I thought. Uh, you have to be totally idiotic or nuts to want to ever do something weekly because, and, and I was working at the New York times at the time, and there were opinion writers or op-ed opinion writers who were writing twice a week. And I was thinking, there's just no way you can do that. There's no way you can have quality control if you're doing that often. So I, for the past 12 years have been doing a weekly radio show. And uh, I will just say it's um, it's a great challenge, but a challenge that I like because the coin of the realm is ideas. And when you don't have a job job, like this is my job, this is what I do. And I would say I spend um, a good several hours a week doing nothing but trying to think and read and talk with people that I don't know to try to find good ideas. And so, you know, it's just, it's just part of the the mechanism. And once in a while, if I feel like, oh, you know, I've done everything within economics or psychology or whatever, there's always anthropology and sociology. And we just finished a three-part series on the economics and history of the whaling industry. So yeah, I I, I used to, I I sort of am worried about it. I used to worry more. I don't worry anymore.
0: Can you ever shut it off? (laughs) Like, Like an architect who walks down the street, who looks at every building and says, that's pretty good that's terrible. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know any
1: architects who walk down the street and say that's pretty good. They're always like. Oh, oh that's good. That's a good point.
0: <laughs> um, but like even, even in in social situations or family time or personal time, uh, is there is there ever a time where it's like, you know, Dad, look, that's how the thing works and that's how it works. And can we move on from this?
1: Yeah. It's a problem, bud. You've identified a key <laughs> problem. Um, Excellent. Yeah. I, I well, I'm, think glad that, to, um... I'm glad
0: to bring it out into the open. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think that um, my family, my wife, um, my kids, my kids are both in their early 20s now. You know, I, I think, I mean, I don't mean to make it sound as though they they hate it. But once in a while, it's like, just let it be, you know, or like there doesn't have to be uh, anything beyond the obvious, just accept it for what it is. Um, but, you know, in my job, in my work with 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 radio, which is, you know, primarily I'm an interviewer Your job is to listen and hear and to figure out what's going on. So I try, you know, I actually, um, I'm doing this because I like you so much, bud. Um, I don't like to be the one who's talking. I like to be the one who's, who's, who's listening. So, um, I do, I think I'm fairly obnoxious in my, uh, you know, steady slash never ending pursuit of figuring stuff out or learning stuff. It's really just basic curiosity, but I do try to shut up, um, now and again, especially when I'm with friends and family, not, not, I think they would tell you I'm not particularly successful. The other thing is I was the youngest kid in a big family and they were a very verbal family. I didn't really get to talk that much when I was a kid. So I'm making up for it now.
0: Hmm. Well, but I'm curious if that curiosity, which to me is a beautiful thing. I mean, if you're not curious about the world, if you think you've got it all figured out, how, how interesting is that? I mean, there's tons more to be learned. And the whaling industry is just, you know, one good example of that. But can you point to growing up? Did you naturally curious person from those years growing up? Or is this something that uh, has kind of come to you uh, as an adult living in the city?
1: Yeah, I, I was curious. It's just, um, I you know, I honestly, I think... Um, I think curiosity is uh the main ingredient of of childhood, um not even childhood before you know in in infant infantness, whatever the word is, like if you think about it when a when a baby or a toddler let's say drops something off the high chair onto the ground, that's essentially an experiment. What is this thing gonna do? Is it gonna make noise? is it gonna uh stay in the air? is it gonna be suspended? what's gravity? uh am I gonna get yelled at and so on so you're constantly trying to figure out the world as a kid with language, with behavior, interactions, and so on. So I do think that um, curiosity is a, a primary ingredient of every human when we're young. And the slightly sad story is that it gets uh, sort of beaten out of us over time. In I think school often does not do a good job of uh, encouraging curiosity, I think um you know a lot of a lot of education systems um, do a pretty good job of uh, i guess I would call it more um, you know multiple choice versus fill in the blank you know <laughs> um, i'm not a big fan of that kind of learning um I also think once you get into a professional setting I remember you know, just being in editorial meetings when I was working in in journalism at New York magazine at the New York Times, where you know there was this kind of uh, uh stated uh appetite for Uh, Let's hear any idea. No, there's no such thing as a bad idea. No such thing as a stupid question. Whatever, then you'd you'd say something. And I remember I actually did have a boss once, a lovely, lovely guy, great journalist at the New York Times. Say, actually, I I take it back. There is such a thing as a bad idea, (laughs) and that was it. And so, you know, if you have thin skin or whatnot, um, it it, it's very easy to become an incurious person. The other thing I would say is, I agree with what you just said, Bud, which is that like. Why would you not want to be curious? The world is fascinating, et cetera, et cetera. But I will say this. There are some people who don't like curiosity directed at them. There are a lot of people, I've not a lot of people I've met. There are people I've met, you meet someone at a party or whatever on an airplane, and I naturally will ask questions. And a lot of people just, I, again, I shouldn't say a lot. I don't know the share. But some people really don't like curiosity the question asking being trained on them and that took me a long time to uh, to come to grips with but now that i have i i respect it and i i feel that um you know to each is his or her own but uh, my curiosity uh, it, it takes a while you, you have to tell me shut up like four or five times before i accept it so i'll i'll just keep at it
0: i'm a bit of a nervous flyer and i was on a about an hour long flight this is maybe 10 years ago to portland maine and it was bumpy and uh, the woman sitting next to me was, uh, had a vineyard in Portugal. So I asked her about a half an hour of questions about (laughs) Portuguese wine, of which I know nothing. And about half an hour in, she just kind of looked at me and her English was fine. She looked at me as if to say, even I'm not that interested in Portuguese, you know, and I need I need to do something other than think about the fact that the flame was shaking. So.
1: Did you tell um, her that you were did you tell her that she was your coping mechanism to not worry so much about the flight? Think, did she understand I
0: think that? I, I said that to myself.
1: Yeah, because yeah, she probably would have been very understood. She would probably would have told you about Spanish wine and French wine and Italian wine. Bulgarian wine, you know, I should
0: have thought about that.
1: It would have made the second (laughs) half of the
0: trip much better Uh, before we get to the growing up years and uh, your uh, chapter as a rock and roll star, as I understand it, um, or maybe I'm putting too fine a point on that, but we'll get to that in a couple of minutes and an absolutely beautiful book called Turbulent Souls, which is still one of my favorite books Uh, when you go into the first. Having a successful book is great, and that's great. But the notion of the title of a book becoming part of the vocabulary, that's pretty rarefied air. That doesn't happen to even the, the, the great, you know, the most successful authors. And so I'm curious as you're getting into the first freakonomics. I understand that you had met your co author by doing a story about him for the New York Times. Is there a notion of, oh, we've got something here before the book comes out or a sense of it's interesting to us? I don't know if it's going to sell 12 (laughs) copies, but, you know, we'll see. Uh,
1: I would say it was more the latter. Honestly, I had a friend years ago. He's since died. Really good writer um, who (laughs) when he was about to publish before I had published my first book. Uh, he had, he was just about to publish his second or third. And he said uh, it, it was like a week or two out. And he said, yeah, Stephen, this is what we call the lull before the lull. Like you've been working on this book for years. You care about it more than anything other than maybe a family member or two. And then, you know, the vast majority of books come out and just nobody reads them. There's still something like 200, 250,000 books a year published in this country. And really only a relative handful get read by more than a handful of people. So the odds of any one book succeeding are, are, as you said, really, really slim. I will say one thing or maybe one and a half things. When I was writing an article for, as you said, the New York Times Magazine about Steve Levitt, my eventual co-author on Freakonomics, um, he was an economist. He still is an economist at the University of Chicago. And I went out and I spent a few days with him there, and I, you know, read his research. And now I'd interviewed him a bunch, and and it was just really, really interesting to me. I was in the middle of a different book about what I called the psychology of money, a book that I ended up putting in a drawer when we started working on Freakonomics, but I was. I've been talking to a lot of economists and others, psychologists and so on, and I found Levitt's work and his way of explaining um, his methodology, his way of thinking about the world, the way of using the discipline of economics as a sort of set of tools to uh, answer questions that lay outside the realm of what we typically think of as economics. I I found all that Really interesting and engaging and fun. And I remember calling my wife from Chicago after the first day or two of reporting and saying, you know, I don't know if anybody's going to care about this article at all, but I am loving it. And, you know, I think that's really the key to doing. I'm not going to say good work because you can care a lot and do bad work. You can maybe not care and do good work. But it's the key to doing fulfilling work, I think, is to do something that really, really, really turns you on. You know, as a writer, when you're starting out, you know, you have to take assignments that you're not crazy about and you try to do your best. But I never loved that. I always like trying to find my own stories. And so with Levitt and then what turned into Freakonomics, it was just thrilling to work on. And also, you know, but being part of a team, even a team of two um, as with a co author is is fun it's it 's much less isolating than being a solo author, and that comes from you know playing sports growing up, being in a mm-hmm. band for many years. There is something about a shared purpose, a shared mission that is is just really exciting and also you know to say nothing of what economists call complementarities like there are things i 'll do better, there are things someone else will do better, and that produces something better in the end that said. You know, when we finished the book, (laughs) we had a really good time writing it, but I don't think we had any expectations of great success. Our publisher, I don't think they had any expectations of great success either. We proposed the title Freakonomics that was um, come up with uh, Steve Levitt's sister, Linda Gines, who unfortunately died, uh, you know, maybe eight or 10 years ago. She came up with it and the publisher hated the title you know, it, it didn't feel like it was bound for success. And then, you know, a good thing happened and then another good thing and then a lucky thing. And then it kind of started to snowball. And when we were in the middle of it, it was, you know, it was bonkers. It was just so much fun. And it was, again, really fun to share it with someone other than my wife and family to have a partner, you know, saying, can can you believe that this thing just keeps on going and doing this and getting bigger and giving us opportunities to do other work and so on? So, We didn't expect it. I feel, I mean, the the book, the first Freakonomics book came out, um, gosh, is it? Oh, maybe 18 years ago. And um, I still, honestly, I'd say probably an average of once a day, at least really on average, I still just think about how lucky I have been. I have a lot of friends who are really good writers, really smart. They work really hard. Um, Well, that's that may be one area where I might beat some of them out. I work I work really, really hard because um, I'm probably not as smart and not as gifted maybe naturally as a writer as, as some of them. Um, but, you know, it's it's a bit of a crapshoot. And so, yeah, it, it was a lot of luck for which I'm grateful. But then, look, when you get you lucky, your, it's like you make your own luck, though.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: absolutely. You went you out know. to
0: Chicago. You, just, you said it as a as a like an aside. I had read his research.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you do seriously. uh, You know, as
0: a journalist, as a as a reporter, I know from from past experience that if you prove to the writer, be it an economics writer or a novelist, or that you've read their book or their work, or maybe even two or three, they'll talk to you all weekend. So (laughs) (laughs) so you made a connection with this person based on the work that you had put
1: into it. That's true. I think. I think it's attributed to Gary Player, the South African golfer, but it's probably attributed to 100 people. The quote is something like, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, uh, yeah I, I'm a big believer in it. Yeah.
0: So one last thing about free economics, and that is, as it's taking off, is there a moment or a story or an incident that kind of symbolizes, wow, we, not only have we got something here, but this has gone way beyond what we expected.
1: Oh, gosh. Honestly, there were a lot, Uh, you know, even when the book was still fairly fresh, um, you know, uh, I don't know how fresh it was then, but I remember when the TV show Modern Family came out and there's, I think, Alex, the kind of nerdy girl, the the middle kid in the family Mm -hmm. sitting by the pool reading Freakonomics and um, you know, instances like that. The show Suits. I think it's on the first episode of Suits. Somebody told me I've never seen it. Where the guy says, you know, somebody asked this guy, "Where? How do you know how? How do you how do you have these kind of ideas said, Well, all?" I read Freakonomics, didn't you? So that was just weird. Um, to have something like you said earlier, something that you just write—it's just a book. I'd written other books become part of the conversation. Um, I get—I got pretty. Like not bored of that part of it, but you kind of you kind of accept it, and move on. So what I was eager to do then was to do more stuff, to do more work. So we had, you know, having a successful nonfiction book gives you latitude and opportunity to get other material, to interview people, to get hold of data, and so on um, that you might not have otherwise. Um, additionally, then when I converted uh, to to radio about 12 or 13 years ago now. Uh, It was mostly just as a goof. Um, I wanted to start, uh, what I really wanted to do was start a public radio show, but I didn't want to have to sit through 1800 meetings the way you do when you pitch a project to a big institution. So I thought, I'm just going to start Freakonomics Radio, I called it, but as a podcast, distribute it digitally. That's easy and then try to get my foot in the door with public radio that way. And that's essentially the, the, the path we took that it was so much more fun and easier to do the kind of radio show I wanted to do having the brand or the success of the book, because you could get um, people uh, to do interviews that otherwise hadn't even, didn't even know what a podcast was. Right. And so again, um <clears throat> I I don't I don't really like the I've never liked the idea that you have a a brand. It wasn't something that I was comfortable with because I feel a brand is like soda pop or T-shirts or something and not not book writing. Um, But once I accepted that people saw what we do or what I do as sort of a brand, uh, it becomes incumbent upon you to leverage that brand to do the work that you want to do and to not like exploit it stupidly. You know, we're not going to make, we're not just going to try to squeeze money out of it. We're always going to try to do worth work that's worthwhile. So that's really been the fun of it all.
0: Your father was in, in newspapers, correct? In, in Troy, New he York? Was.
1: That's right. Yeah. He, wor- he worked, uh, we lived out in, as you said, Dwaynesburg, New York, small town out in the middle of nowhere. And He worked over time for the three major dailies in or three of the major dailies, at least in the in the capital city area, uh, in the capital area, um, all the Albany Times Union, the Schenectady Gazette and the Troy Record.
0: Yeah. So did that experience and I know I know he died and you were still a young kid, uh, but did that experience, do you think that rubs off on you in some way and it and it has a tangible effect on your choices later on?
1: Oh yeah, hugely. Um, You know, as I mentioned, I was the youngest in a big family and everybody was pretty talented in a, in a variety of ways. Every, a lot of, you know, a lot of sports, a lot of music, a lot of writing, good at school, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But for me, writing was always really the big one. I was just, I loved reading and writing. I loved the idea of being a writer. I love And that was plainly modeled a lot on my dad. And you know, the fact that he did die when I was young, like 10 years old, probably made it even more intense. Um I will say this though, then years later <clears throat> when I went back and and read everything he ever wrote for the for the first book that I wrote a book about my family that you mentioned Turbulent Souls, I realized like he wasn't a very good writer. I lo- my dad was a lovely lovely guy. He wasn't a great writer. My mom, who was not a professional writer, she was, you know, the mother of eight and she did 18 million other things to basically run the family and this was a family with very little money my dad you know not only was he only on a newspaper man's salary but he was often sick he didn't he really didn't have a, an easy go of it at all she my mother was so strong heroic really and very talented she'd been a ballerina when she was younger so she had an artistic inclination as well but then i would read her writing which was often in the service of some you know religious or political statement but she was a fantastic writer so i think i got the romance of writing from my father but whatever talent i have probably from my mom
0: turbulent souls is an
1: absolutely gorgeous book
0: we could spend hours talking about that it's still one of my favorite books that i've ever read and for anyone who's listening who has not read it they should uh, because it's just a gorgeous story to encapsulate hundreds of pages it's the story of your family and how your parents grew up jewish but by the time you come around, they're an intensely, and I'm paraphrasing here, intensely Catholic family, raised Catholic, and your search and your curiosity to use that word again about uh your family's origin story, and it's beautifully written. I'm curious if writing that book is oh, of course I'm gonna write this book, or <laughs> were there a moment or two or more of do I really wanna do this? And how will my family respond?
1: um I wasn't so much worried about how they would respond because by then I'd been a journalist for long enough to understand you know how how you treat someone in public and writing is public um so you know there might have been some i mean the big issue for my mom was she, as you as you said, was a a young Jewish woman in Brooklyn, first generation during the second world War who converted became a became a Catholic and then remained a very devout Catholic to the end of her life. Her, the idea for her that I was ultimately returning to Judaism, that was the issue. It wasn't so much about any invasion of privacy or whatnot. Um, the part that was tricky. So so this project, this book began, uh, it had a long history. It began as an oral history, literally me interviewing my mother with a tape recorder, um, Uh, In order to uh, transcribe the uh, conversation and present it in some kind of edited written form to my siblings as a Christmas present when I was about, I don't know, 21, 22, 23, I was playing music at the time, I had no money. Every Christmas, I would give my siblings a cassette tape of my band's latest recording, which you know <laughs> they hated. So I came up with something I thought might be a little bit better, which was it was going to be like an oral history of mom and her childhood and her conversion to Catholicism, which I really didn't know that much about. Oh, sorry, I have to go back further. Um, no, gosh, I can't remember which came first now. Um, I think it was that um but also um after college I'd moved to New York I'm playing with this band we got a record deal we're trying to make our first record uh I ended up quitting music I did not want the life of a traveling rock guy even though it, was, it would have been super super fun and it was super fun but I just didn't want that life long term so I'd gone back to school. I went to Columbia here in New York. I got an MFA in writing, and I was work. I was writing novels. That's what I was trying to write. And the the first book that I got really far on was a book about someone like me with parents like my parents. And I was intrigued by the story of their religious journey, but I kept running into stuff that I didn't know. Uh, and that's when I went, I think, to my mom then and started really um, interviewing her at length. And so it was a long process. By the time it started to turn into a book, um, I had become a character in it. It started out really just about my parents. But by the time time went on, six, seven years into this project, I had, in the process of investigating their Jewish roots, had kind of fallen into a whole cast of characters in New York who were Jewish, who were reconnecting me to my Jew, theoretically, you know, Jewish universe. And so my big reluctance finally to get to your, to your actual question, my big reluctance wasn't about family secrets or whatnot. It was, do I want to be a character in a book that I write, especially my first book? And the answer was no. Like we were just raised, like, you don't talk about yourself. You don't brag. You don't use the word I or me is that much, which is again, why I, kind of don't love doing this kind of thing, at least not too much. Um, but um, it was a piece of writing and like any piece of writing or music or whatever, it becomes what it becomes over time. And it would have felt very strange for me as a character to disappear from it. So that was the big reluctance, but I overcame it. Then I write a, then I wrote another book that I was in, which was called Confessions of a Hero Worshipper, which was a sports a memoir about my sports childhood hero, Franco Harris. When that was done, I was so, 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 so happy to find a guy like Steve Levitt, the economist at University of Chicago, and start and get back to the writing I'd always done, which is writing about other people, other stuff, other phenomenon. That's what Freakonomics was. So I'm pretty happy having done a couple. I mean, it was absurd. I was writing memoirs when I was like in my early 30s. It was idiotic. (laughs) But. It happened organically. I don't regret it. It just wasn't what I really, really wanted. And then uh, I'm much happier being, I guess, kind of behind the camera than in front.
0: Right. That's fine. But as a reader, both of those are really good books. And Mm. good is good. I I appreciate
1: Uh, it. And you know what? I I do. And um, also, uh, I'll cut you
0: off. Turbulent Souls also, if I remember correctly, leads to a a connection to Cardinal O'Connor.
1: That's true, yeah,
0: yeah, and also if I really remember correctly is the subject of a nightline on christmas eve am i am i correct in that all all
1: true, good memory, yep. yeah, all those things are real
0: which was which was memorable the notion of this story being the story being told on Christmas Eve on nightline was pretty
1: great it it was uh it was weird i mean i i mean i never like i don't read my i don't read my own books back i don't i never watch uh like if if I'm on TV or whatnot, I, I try really hard not to see it. It's just uh it's hard to um <clears throat> it's hard to describe. There's just a certain level of discomfort at putting oneself forward. And you know, that was really the reason I stopped playing in the band. I loved playing music and I loved my band. The guys it was awesome. It was amazing. I loved writing And you songs. had a record contract, yes? We did, yeah, and and I loved performing. I did, but the part of it that I didn't love was this idea that I needed it in order to be like adored. That's the part where I think people get in trouble. Like the need to be petted and adored and told you're great at something. This is, you know, I think what we see in a lot of the downside of social media. Like people need to put themselves out there to get thumbs up um, as a means of building their self-esteem or establishing or whatnot. And I just don't think for me, at least that was, that was healthy. Uh, I didn't want that kind of, um, life. So I don't regret those first two books. I actually really liked them a, a great deal. Um, but like I said, I'm just happier writing more in the third person.
0: When you were trying to make a go of it as a musician. And then after you go to Columbia to go to graduate school, uh, did you immediately after graduate school start working at the time, start working at New York magazine, or were there jobs along the way that were not exactly how Mm. you pictured it? And were there any plan B's if that didn't work out? Mm.
1: Yeah. So the plan B or the plan A actually was to write novels and teach college. That's why I went to graduate school. I didn't really feel like I didn't even know what an MFA was for. But I had a girlfriend at the time who had grown up in a in a family that had really good educational opportunities and so on, a little bit different than my family. and she said, "You know, you should go to the best school you can get into. you're right. I just quit music, you know, get a graduate degree in writing and um so i w- I was very glad she encouraged me to do that, and I was surprised and grateful to get into Columbia and uh, so my plan was to get an mFA. Uh, and write novels and teach at a university somewhere, college or university somewhere, um, as my career. And I I started doing that. I I actually during while getting my MFA at Columbia, I was I was able to teach in the English department at Columbia an amazing course called Logic and Rhetoric, which is no longer taught there because apparently it was too hard. And too demanding, too much writing and reading for freshmen, um, it was an amazing opportunity to teach it. The kids the undergrads at Columbia were so smart uh, they weren't great writers, but they were so smart, and I thought, what am I do-? you know like I, I really don't have the the capacity to be teaching them writing, but I was a good writer and I was a good editor, so I stuck with it, but then I realized, you know I don't have the selflessness to be a great teacher I think great teachers have to care more about their students than anything, um, to be really great. And I wanted to be a writer. So while I was, uh, a teaching, you know, while I was teaching at Columbia, finishing up my MFA program, I was supposed to teach for one more year. I went to them and I said, listen, um, by then I'd started freelancing a little bit, uh, for magazines, um, in New York and, you know, got some crappy assignments, got some good assignments, Um, But I had an opportunity to get a low-level job at New York Magazine. So, yeah, I bailed, essentially. Um, I got my MFA. I didn't go back to teach for a full another year at Columbia. I started at New York Magazine. I was there four years. Uh, The Times came to get me, which I was really excited about. I was there about another five years, and by then I'd already published my first book. And um, I didn't – you know, I'm not a great employee, bud. I don't – I'm not great at following rules. I'm bad in meetings. I tend to say what I actually think as opposed to what you're supposed to say in a meeting. And so I was pretty ready after eight or nine years as an employee in journalism and also kind of, you know, like the Times was a union shop, which I appreciate, but I would bust my ass and do more work than a lot of the senior people on the the staff where I was and the, the the incentives just didn't align with the work. And so I was much more comfortable being a free agent, going off on my own and kind of being a little bit more entrepreneurial in that way, um, writing, you know, t- taking a risk on myself, writing books and hoping it worked out. So that was a, that was a big risk and decision for me, you know, and I always tell people like quitting, I think is really underrated. I, I, I've, I've quit a lot of things in my life now. You know, I quit playing music, When we had a record deal, I quit the New York Times when that was like a dream of mine, because I think it's very easy to get complacent, but you have to listen to yourself and see what really excites you, what's going to drive you to do your best work. And often that's not what you're doing at the moment, even though the world might look at what you're doing and say, oh, that's kind of perfect.
0: Did you get a lot of that as far as the Times is concerned from people who know and love you? Like, are you kidding? You're leaving the New York Times.
1: Oh, yeah, it was, um, uh it was yeah i mean people told me i was just being an idiot um and then you know you you get evidence of the idiocy very quickly when you're working at the times and you're working on a, a if you're writing or editing an article and you call someone and say hey this is so and so from the times i need to ask you some questions about this you always get that call returned that co- they always take that call When you're just a person out there saying, yeah, I'm writing a book about this and that and this and that and this and that, I'd like to come see how you do what you do. (laughs) It's a it's a different story. Um, On the other hand, you know, but that's that's why I like economics. Economists are they're bad at a lot of things, but they're they're good at uh, understanding that there are almost always benefits and costs. And what you need to do is measure them out and weigh them against one another. Nothing is perfect. Nothing is absolutely valueless. And so for me, at least my temperament, uh, was going to be much better to be uh, running my own show.
0: You touched on it a little bit earlier, but are there aspects of your life growing up in this small town, upstate New York, big family, and your family story that you learn about years later, and maybe the early years in the band, making that decision to leave music, are there lessons from those early chapters that you think still affect and pertain to your work today?
1: Hmm. Yeah, there there are a lot. I would say, I mean, a lot of it was about keep your head down, do your work, et cetera, et cetera. That was a, that was a big one. My family just had a good work ethic, and I feel very fortunate to have been born into that. My my family were also my mom and dad, my siblings. They are really good people, and again, I feel fortunate. It's a bit of a crapshoot. I was also born into you know the richest country in the history of the world during a period when it was incredibly good to be born then there's a lot of luck uh or bad fortune that other people suffer so i think it's it's always really important to you know acknowledge that i think the biggest it wasn't meant as advice um but something my mom said once or said like it, this wasn't something that she would say repeatedly like you know you really need to listen to this it was something i remember her saying or telling me that she read It was just a quote. I looked it up years later. I can't remember now who said it. Um, but it's something that really guides me now. And it's something that informs me into how you kind of see the world and how you see yourself in the world. And the quote is: Enough is as good as a feast. I feel like um, you know, the minute you get something, you want more. That's almost human nature. And a lot of psychology looks at habituation and and things like that, where you get used to something good, and then you immediately take it for granted and want more of it. My mom teaching me that idea, enough is as good as a feast, has been hugely resonant for me. And I try to remember it for myself, but I also really try to teach it, you know, within my family. Um, I try to spread it around the world a little bit, you know, there's so many things one can complain about at any given time. Um, But man, oh man, if you don't stop to acknowledge uh, the good fortune that we've all had by being alive in this time and place, if you don't stop to acknowledge your opportunities um and, and just focus on what you're missing, what the other person has, you know, another quote I love is comparison is the thief of joy? I find that to be very true as well. And look, maybe this is the reason I love to work alone, but I don't spend a lot of time comparing myself to others. And I'm I'm a pretty happy uh, guy in that regard. But those are some guiding principles that came from my family, and I'm forever grateful for them. And um, you know, if if people ask me for guidance now and again, I, I, that's that's the kind of gospel I like to spread.
0: Stephen, I've always loved the writing, loved the radio show, <laughs> and uh, loved the curiosity. Thank you Right back at
1: you, Right back at you, bud, by the way. Right back at you. Thank you very much.
0: Stephen Dubner. His Freakonomics Radio is launching a series on failure. Asking the question, is failure really not an option? And there will be Freakonomics live events in New York on November 1st and Boston on November 9th. More information at Freakonomics.com. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing? That's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey.